The stories of the Gospels tell of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what comes next? What happened after the resurrection? While the disciples were still talking, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Well, we are in part four of our series, After the Resurrection, where we are looking at what Jesus did in those days after he rose from the dead. And before we get to today's message, let me start you off with a question. And the question is this. If Jesus was around today, if Jesus was around today, the year 2020, what do you think he'd be doing? Where would he go? How would he spend his time? What would Jesus be doing if Jesus was here in 2020 today? Now, obviously, we'll never know the answer to this question, but I do think it's important to at least ask. And the reason why, because it goes to a fundamental belief that I have and that hopefully you have and that really this series is, is, is based upon, and that is that we as the church are the body of Christ and that God dwells in this world today through his body, the church, and God acts in the world today through that same body, which is the church. You see, if you look back 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was born and he lived and he walked and he lived in a body and he walked around in a body and he spoke to people from his body and he healed people in his body, body that was born of a virgin, okay, you know, Bethlehem, uh, raised in Nazareth, um, hung around the Sea of Galilee, um, you know, fed the 5,000, walked on water. He had an actual physical body that did all those things. Now, one day he died and his body was buried. And the people looked and said, oh no, we're never going to see Jesus again. And it was a sad, sad, sad day because they thought they would never see Jesus again. His body was buried. He's gone. But then we know the story. Okay, three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. And again, they see him, not just they feel his presence, but they see him in the body. Okay, they see him resurrected body. And for 40 days, Jesus was with them. Again, talking, walking, uh, feeding, okay, spending time with them. And then at the end of those 40 days, something happened. Jesus said, again, I'm going to leave you in the flesh. My body is about to ascend up into heaven. But this time... Okay, they weren't as sad this time because this time they were prepared for it. And what Jesus did to his disciples at the end of those 40 days when he said, my body, I'm going to go. What he basically said to them is, look, I'm done. And now it's your turn. It's your turn to keep the mission going. It's your turn to continue to do the work which I began in my body. Look what Jesus says right here in John chapter 20, verse 21 through 23, after he had risen from the dead. He said to them right before he ascended, he said, as the father has sent me, I also send you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Who Jesus talking to here? He's talking to the church. He's talking to his apostles, okay, in the first century, but he's also talking to us today as his church, as his mystical body on this earth. And basically what he's saying is, look, is when I walk this earth, 
I did so in the body. I had a mission. I had stuff that I was trying to get accomplished. But back then, the body of Christ, the body of Christ was limited in the sense that it was only in one city, only with one people group, only in one culture or ethnicity, okay, with the Jews in, 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 in Jerusalem there, okay, and in, in, in Israel. But today, the body of Christ lives. The body of Christ is not dead. The body of Christ lives. And the same Jesus is still working through his body. The only difference is the body may look different, but the Jesus inside the body is the same. The same thing Jesus did through his physical body 2,000 years ago, he now does through his mystical body. And that is the mystery of the church. The church itself, we've been talking in this series about sacraments or mysteries and how God works through them. But like we said before, the church in and of itself is a mystery. It is a sacrament because it is God working in human form. It is the fullness of him who fills all in all here amongst us men. We in his church are his body. And specifically, the vehicles that God uses to work and interact with his creation today, we call those sacraments. And it's through those sacraments, as we've been talking about in this series, that we get to participate and partake in the divine nature, as St. Peter told us in his epistle. If you're just kind of getting caught up right here, we're talking about each week we're looking at one of the different sacraments, and we're seeing about how we participate in the divine nature, we partake in the divine nature through those sacraments. So far, we've looked at two. We looked at priesthood, and we saw how priesthood is the presence of Christ on this earth. And then we last week, we looked at baptism, and we saw how in baptism, we receive new life, and we are adopted into his family. We are born again. And what I want to say is this, is the same new life that we receive in baptism, this is very important, is the same new life that Jesus in his physical body gave to the Samaritan woman when she believed and gave to Mary Magdalene when she came to him and gave to Zacchaeus and gave to Levi and gave to all of them. It's the same new life. It's the same Jesus that's acting. Then he acted in his physical body. Now he acts through his mystical body. The same breath, the verse that we just read, the same breath of the Holy Spirit that came through his physical body now comes through his mystical body, okay, through the sacraments. The same body and blood that Jesus gave to his disciples, he gave them in the physical flesh. Now we receive the same body and same blood through his mystical body, which is the church. The sacraments are how the church carries on the work of Christ today and forevermore. That's why in the day of Pentecost, okay, after Jesus had ascended up, the Holy Spirit came down, St. Peter went out there and he preached all the people. And the people wonder, what is this guy going to say? And this is what he said to them amongst many other things in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. It says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, here's the important part. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And I'm saying that same promise still applies today to you and you and you and everyone out there. The same promise, the same new life, the same Holy Spirit, the same remission of sins is still available to us <clears throat> through the mystical body of Christ, which is the church. And that's why I asked in the beginning, if Jesus was here today, what do you think he'd be doing? And that's why that question is so important because the answer, however we answer that question gets to the core of our mission as a church. 
Like if I think Jesus would be here today and be watching Netflix all day, then I, as the leader of the church, I need to be doing the same thing. If I think Jesus would be here today and he'd be arguing with people on Facebook, then that's what I need to be doing. If I think Jesus would be out there saving the world one clever tweet at a time and talking about all the bad things in the world on Twitter and doing nothing else about it, then that's what we should be doing as well. But if you ask me, Jesus' ministry, among many other things that he did, if you had to boil it down, I would say that Jesus' ministry was primarily one of healing. He came as a physician to a people who are sick. Let me give you a few verses from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, all three of the evangelists, look what they say about Jesus and his ministry. It says then Matthew 9.35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus went about, he walked around, he touched people, but ultimately his objective, he came to them and he healed them. Next verse, Mark 6, 56. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that he might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Hold on to that, that phrase right there. As many as touched him were made well. Let's go to Luke, Luke 4, 40. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. I want you to notice two things there. Two things. One is that Jesus healed many, 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 many people. That's the obvious one. The second one is that all of those healings, many people were healed. Many people were healed. Those people who were healed were not healed in a group way, not healed in mass. They were healed by an individual touch, one by one. As many as touched him were made well. As many as he laid his hands on, every one of them was made well. What I'm saying is Jesus came as a healer, but he didn't come as a healer who would say, okay, everybody get together, Okay, and then you know what? I'm going to say this prayer over you all and then you're all going to be healed. He didn't come peddling some kind of, of, of magic trick or some kind of like, you know, to put, put this in a bottle and drink it or whatever it is. Jesus didn't come to give mass healing. What he did in his physical body was he came to sick people and he laid hands on them and he touched them or they touched him. And through that, they found healing. Well, you know what? The same is still true today in his mystical body, which is the church. We're going to talk about the sacrament of confession today. And here's what confession is in a nutshell. Confession is where we, where we receive the healing touch of Christ today. Jesus healed by a physical touch, an individual touch in his physical body. Jesus heals by an individual touch, a personal touch and through his mystical body as well. Now, we're going to talk about confession. Okay, and I know as soon as they say confession, boop, flags go up, okay? You know, don't listen to confession. Confession is man-made. Confession is something that's not from God. Confession is not in the Bible. I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. Usually when we think about confession, just give me a chance to maybe present confession to you in a different light than maybe you have believed about it or, or known about it to this point. Usually we don't think of confession and healing in the same sentence. We think of confession less about healing and more about listing of sins 
and consequences for those sins, right? Like the picture that we've all seen in the movies or if you went to Catholic school the way I did, it was you go, you say all the bad stuff and you end with like some kind of consequence like 10 Hail Marys or, you know, Our Fathers or everyone's favorite was the Glory Bees. Those were the shortest, okay? You want to get as many of those Glory Bees as you could, okay? So we have this idea in our mind it's less about healing, less about going to a doctor, and it's more about going to a judge, okay? And you want to be on your best behavior. You're, oh, no, I'm going to that judge. You want to make sure you look good in front of the judge. Or it's like going to the principal's office. Nobody wants to go to our principal's office. Or it's like coming home from school to your parents, to your Middle Eastern parents, your overachieving, expecting overachieving parents, and coming home with a D, Okay, you couldn't come home with an F. You, if you had an F, you just wouldn't come home. Okay, you would just be in a river somewhere or something like that. But let's say you had a D. And coming home with a D, okay, nobody wants to come. Like, no one is like, yes, can't wait to go see my parents today. No one who goes to the principal's office is like, yes, call to the principal's office again. Yes. No one stands in front of a judge and is like, woohoo, I get to be on trial. Woohoo. Nobody gets excited if they think that a punishment or a consequence is coming. So no wonder we don't like confession. If that's our view of confession, no wonder we avoid it. No wonder we make excuses. No wonder we try to prove that it's not really from God and it's not really good for us and we don't really need it because we have the wrong impression of it. But maybe we're missing the point. Maybe confession isn't about a judge. Maybe confession is completely different. Let's take a step back. In orthodoxy, our view of salvation but really, I want to say our view of life, our view of salvation, but really our view of life is a little bit different than maybe um, most people today and most people realize. The focus for us is less about a crime that needs to be punished, some kind of sin that needs, you know, a consequence or needs to be um, uh, uh, paid for. And it's more about a sickness that needs to be healed. What I'm saying is it's less LA law and more ER. And I understand those both shows from the 90s, but I can't know any shows today. That's the best I could come up with, okay? But if you're like me, it's less LA law or whatever lawyer show or whatever trial show or less a few good men, okay? And it's more ER or more, you know, the the the... A Grey's Anatomy or the, the Blue, whatever it may be, okay? Whatever doctor show that you know. It's less, I'm trying to avoid using these big words, less juridical, big word, more medicinal. It's less Christ the judge and more Christ the physician or the healer. Confession is the same. See, we have this wrong view of confession. We think it's, you gotta go to confession because you did bad stuff and it's bad to do bad stuff and that's a sin, I need to go confess. I need to receive your punishment like a man. I need to go confess. Well, good Lord, no. Who wants to go confess? Who, who, why would anyone want to go to confession if it's that way? That kind of punitive approach. For us, we view it more like a virus. <laughs> like a virus that needs to be exposed in order to be healed. Now, obviously, I say virus and you got a clear picture in your mind. Stay away from virus, okay? Okay, and don't worry. I'm more than six feet from this camera. So as long as you're six feet from the TV, like you'll be okay. But let's think of sin, okay? Since viruses are just kind of on our mind these days. Let's think of sin as a virus, as a deadly virus, a fatal virus. And let's say that's a virus that you were born with. 
and there's no escape to that virus, and you lived many, 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 many years, okay, like humanity lived many, many, many years, and there was no escape from this virus. This virus claimed so many lives, and it was death to everyone who was born because they were born with this virus. Then let's say after many years, an antidote was found. Let's not say a vaccine. Let's go antidote, okay? Something to kind of fix it after the fact, okay? I hope I'm using those terms right. An antidote was found. Something that even though you get this virus, okay, because you're going to get the virus, something that could fix it and remove it. Let's not say remove it, but at least give you the power to overcome it. And that antidote, okay, if sin is, is a virus, which leads to death, the antidote is the death of a savior. And we receive that antidote through the waters of baptism. Now, something I said last week, again, I just want to emphasize this point right here. I am not saying that the water of baptism is the antidote. I'm saying Jesus is the antidote and his shedding of his blood is the antidote. And we receive that through the water. So there's a difference. Okay. We're not saying that the water has saving inside. Like it's just water from a faucet. Just like we're not saying that the bread that's communion is fancy bread. It's just bread. It's just water. This is the whole point of what a sacrament is. It's not the substance itself, because if it was the substance, then we'd just be superstitious, or it would be magic, or we'd be voodoo. It's not the substance. It's Christ working in the substance and through the substance to give us the healing. So again, think of the antidote. The healing is in Christ and in his blood, the blood that was shed for you and for many and given for the remission of sins. But that blood is received to us or received by us through the waters of baptism. It's the vehicle. And when we receive that antidote, it's like getting a heart transplant. It's like we had a heart that was sick with this virus, and it's like getting a new one, one free from that virus, one that works properly. But here's the problem, is that even though we received a new heart, even though we received one that is healthy, the virus is still all around us. The virus, you can catch it anywhere. The virus is everywhere. And the infection rate is very high and it's highly transmittable and, and all that stuff. Worse than any of the, 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 the stuff that you see here today. So the question becomes this. What happens if you get infected a second time? You were born with the condition. You had the heart transplant. You were clean, but you got infected again. What happens then? Do you need a second transplant? Well, that's where confession comes in. And Jesus addressed this point in John chapter 13 when he washed the feet of his disciples and he said the following sentence, John 13, verse 10. It says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Jesus says, he who is bathed doesn't need to take another bath again. He just needs to wash his feet. Now, I like the term wash. The fact that Jesus talks about washing, washing implies something. Washing implies that the state you're in now is an unnatural state. Washing implies that you are clean by your nature, but you've received some kind of dirt or defilement or distortion that needs to be removed away. It's not that you are dirty, you are clean, but some dirt got on you and there's a big difference. And I'm telling you the difference, okay? Humor me here for a second. Let me go off on a little bit of a tangent, but just humor me. I'll ask you another question. I asked you a question in the beginning. Let me ask you another question. Would you, would you ever wash poop? Yes, I said poop. 
Would you ever wash poop? Now you're sitting there saying, why would I wash poop? Just humor me here. The reason that you wouldn't wash poop is because poop, by its nature, is unclean, is dirty, is something bad, and cannot be washed. You cannot wash poop. Now, this is kind of a personal subject here to me, and I'll tell you the reason why it's personal to me. Because in my house, okay, I don't do a lot around the house. I have the best wife in the whole wide world who does really everything. But my one claim to fame, okay, the one thing I can hang my hat on when I don't do much or to anything, the one thing I can claim, my hang my hat on, is that I do laundry. Okay, I'm the laundry guy in the house, okay? I like doing laundry. Marianne used to do the laundry, and I just kind of took it over. I just did a coup one day, and I said, I'm doing the laundry. No one does laundry except me. I like doing the laundry. I don't know why. I think it's something about, like, I like to just declare one day as the laundry day. Like, I know some people are in a constant state of laundry. It's like they're always washing. Something's going in and out, and that drives me bonkers. I can't take that. I like to declare. I, make, I go around and make a proclamation around the house. Today is laundry day. All the laundry must be downstairs by a certain time. And after that, the gates are shut. Nobody can add any more laundry. And there's something special to me about get all the laundry in one room, okay, and see it as a pile like this and just dwindle, 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 and see how efficient I can get it, how many few loads I can get it. I like to do laundry. That's just my thing. Anyway, to me, there are certain things that I hope you agree. And if you do not agree, then you really need confession, okay? There are certain things that do not go in the washing machine. Certain things do not go in the washing machine. Certain things cannot be washed. I'll tell you the top three. They are poop, they are vomit, and they are mud. Those three do not go in the washing machine. So if you have an item that has any of those three uh, uh, the things on them, any of those three substances, if it's got the vomit, if it's got the poop, if it's got the mud, doesn't go in the machine. That defiles the whole machine and the whole basement is, is ruined at that point in time and we need to just move to a new house. If any of those three items, which are dirty, get on anything else, that's the trash man's problem at that point in time. That item has been declared disposable. I'm done with those items. And the reason why, the reason why is because those three items, their nature is dirty. Their nature is unwashable. You would never, forgive the example, hopefully you had your breakfast before this. You would never say, oh, there's a piece of poop. Okay, let me wash it and make it clean. Like it can never be clean. No matter how, like it can never be clean. You never take the vomit and say, okay, I, I sanitized it. Now you can, like you would, you would never do that because by its nature, it is dirty. But here Jesus talks about us and says wash, which means that our new nature our new heart, remember the transplant a second ago, that new heart that's inside of us is clean. And even though it may be covered in dirt and covered in sin, it's washable. Because by its nature, it's not dirty. By its nature, it's clean and it doesn't need to be replaced. It simply, simply needs to be cleansed or washed. Think of it this way. After baptism, when we sin, we don't need a new transplant. We don't need a new heart. All we need, we just need one of those booster shots, okay, that you need from the doctor every year, the immunizations or whatever. You don't need a whole new thing. You just need like an update to your software, okay, or a cleansing 
of, 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 of the, the, the new heart that is inside. After baptism, our nature has been made new. Sin is not our nature. Sin is foreign to us. Sin is outside of us. And when sin is on us, when sin is on us, something's off. Something's not right. That's why if you pay attention, when we talk about sin, we talk about a fall, okay? We have fallen into sin. That's why when you look at Adam and Eve, we look at Adam and Eve and we say, the fall. The fall means that's not their natural home. Okay, this is where they are, but that's not where they belong. They belong up here, but they fell. It's an unnatural state. And what confession is there to do is to wash us and cleanse us and to restore us back to our original state. So I'll say it this way. Confession isn't about judging a sin. It's about healing a person. Confession isn't about judging a sin. Don't think you need to confess so you get yelled at by the priest. You need to confess because you need to get healed as a person. It's about restoration, not about punishment. It's about correction. It's about healing more than anything else. Now, what I want to do here briefly, briefly. A lot of people have a question of where did confession come from? Okay, because the, here's what you hear. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't say it, it's in the Bible. And because it's not in the Bible, we won't do it. Which is, which is a, a, it's not a valid argument. Because there's many things that we do without questioning it that aren't in the Bible. So if you today stood up to pray and you said in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, it never says to cross yourself like that in the Bible. We do it all the time. The word Trinity, you've probably heard this before, is not in the Bible. It's the foundation of our, of our belief. Churches, okay, we all can't wait today to go back to churches. Okay, well, in the Bible, there was no churches. There were no churches. People met in homes in the book of Acts. There were no churches. So if you just, what's in the Bible, then you should just, like, this quarantine thing, this, like, that's made for you. Okay, you just stay there forever in your little quarantine home. You don't go back to church because that's what it says in the Bible. There's a lot of things in the Bible. So, so everything in the church, okay, is based on biblical principles, all the sacraments, okay, there's foundation in the scriptures, and then the practice evolves over time. And the reason why this is important, actually, this is critical. The church is not an institution with like, you know, uh, uh, here's our articles of incorporation. It's not a formula. It's not a statement. It's not something that you say right or wrong. It's not like, here's everything you need to know. The church is a body. It's living. And anything that's living is growing is evolving, is adapting, is changing. Your body is a living body. Does your body look today like it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Come on, man, our body don't even look like it looked 20 days ago before this quarantine started two months ago. Okay, some of us, we can barely recognize, okay, or our hair, like our body is always changing. That's a sign of being alive. Jesus, when he was alive in the flesh 2,000 years ago, his body changed. Okay, he started off short, got taller. Okay, probably didn't have facial hair at the beginning. He didn't come out the womb with the halo and the beard. He came out like a baby and he grew over time. The church is the same body that evolves and grows over time. That's not saying that our faith evolves or our doctrine evolves as much as it's saying that our practices and our life is always growing. Another reason why this is important, especially for us here at STSA, where our mission statement is to bring an ancient faith to a modern world. We love our ancient faith. 
Okay, but we love our modern world, or at least we live in our modern world, and we must find a way to make our ancient faith relevant, which it already is. Okay, find how that ancient faith fits in this modern world. Well, look here. The church is the manifestation of Christ in the world today. And I'm going to circle that world today, word today. Because Christ in the world today, if the world today changes, then Christ changes with it. Now, again, not changing who he is, not changing, you know, again, the faith, not changing the doctrine. But what I'm saying is, as the church evolves, as the world changes, the church changes with it to continue to minister to it, okay? If the world speaks Aramaic, church speaks Aramaic. World speaks English, church speaks English, all right? The world in quarantine, church in quarantine. The world, okay, the church is a living body that adapts to the world that's around it. So if you just look at the church historically, okay, how could it not adapt and not evolve? The church started, we'll look at the first three centuries, all right, and just simply from the first three centuries, you'll see the church started as a persecuted, a heavily persecuted minority that was running for their lives and had to meet in hiding. And then eventually it became legal. A lot of changes took place there. Then eventually not just legal, but it became the state religion where it was like the in thing to do was to be Christian. So of course, as the climate changes, as the needs of the people change, of course, the practices of the church will evolve as well. And confession is no different. So let's go real quick right here. We're gonna go first century, second century, third century, and I'm kind of generalizing and grouping it. But just how did the, how did the sacrament of confession evolve? Let's start in the first century. In the first century, as I said a minute ago, the church was a persecuted minority, a heavily persecuted minority. You had to be Christian. In order to be Christian, you had to be in hiding, all right? And you had to do things kind of under the table. What does that mean for people who are joining the church? Joining the church wasn't like something like, oh yeah, okay, I'll join the church. Yeah, they got good donuts on Sunday. That's, no, no, you didn't. Joining the church meant you will be forsaken by your family. You'll probably lose your job. You'll be shunned by society and, and there's a good chance you could lose your life. So the only people who are joining the church were people who were all in, all in. And when they spoke about in the first century repentance and confession, it was all about a turning, a leaving behind the old life to join the life with Christ. So for them to be very honest, there wasn't the sacrament of confession the way we know it today. This idea of repentance after baptism was almost non-existent because for the most part, people were joining and they were all in. And there were very few people who would join and then go back to that life. And if they did go back, there's very, very, very few who ever wanted to come back, okay, and join the church. Which is why you can read verses like I'm about to show you up here on the screen that would appear in the first century. It was written by St. Paul in Hebrews chapter six that you would say, oh my goodness, you could never write this today. But again, different context. We're not gonna judge this by today's standards. We're gonna look at it in the context in which it was written. Hebrews chapter six, starting in verse four. For it is impossible. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, talking about baptism. Those who were once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. And you're like, wow, I can't believe you said that. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. 
Basically what St. Paul is saying here, again, we're not going to take this verse out of context. We're not going to take this verse and make a whole religion out of it. Okay. Because you see that Christ said many times, the one who comes to be, I by no means cast out. But what St. Paul is saying is there was very little in their mind. There was no such category as back and forth. There was no back and forth because joining this side was death, was martyrdom. And the only people who did it were in a hundred percent. So first century, they didn't talk much about confession after baptism. Let's go to the second century now. By the second century, you had people being born into the faith who didn't choose it. Sound familiar? People who kind of grew up and it was kind of their parents' religion. Not as much as today, obviously, because it was still one generation, but still, you had people who were just kind of born into it, and obviously this changed the temperature of the church a little bit. Didn't have the same zeal as those who converted in the first century. And this was made very evident when waves of persecution would hit because you had a lot more people denying and renouncing the faith to save their own lives. Okay, one of the early church fathers, okay, St. Cyprian of Carthage, writes this in the second century, second, third century. He talked about how families are divided. A son dies a martyr, but his mother and sister apostatize, right? Families divided, son martyr, mother and sister don't, or they renounce. Born Christians rushed to sacrifice and as quick sacrifice to idols and as quickly beg or demand restoration to that society whose benefits they had so long enjoyed. What he's saying right here is now the church needed to figure this out because now in the second century, now you had people going back and forth. You had people who when, and we're not judging because none of us know what we would look like if, if it were faced with martyrdom, okay? And that's, that's, a, that's a hard thing and we don't look at it in a judging way and we just pray that God would give us grace not to renounce our faith. But you have people there who would renounce their faith and deny and go offer sacrifices and then they would realize the error of their ways and say, no, please let me back. What would the church do? And to be very honest, there wasn't like a consensus. There was differing opinions. Some church fathers were quite harsh. And some church fathers would say that those people who denied Christ in the face of persecution, they are to be outside the body. They are excommunicated. And maybe on the day of their death, okay, on their deathbed, when they know they're about to die, then we can accept their repentance. But till then, they're cut off from the church body. Others on the other extreme were a little bit more lenient. And their thought process was, look, if baptism could, if by repentance, people could be baptized into the faith, then by that same repentance, people could be accepted back into the faith. So you had both of these kind of viewpoints in the second century. But what was clear, what was clear from this time is that the church had a communal component to confession and repentance. There was a communal component, meaning it wasn't just like you denied. So you know what? Go in your room and pray and confess. Okay. And you're okay. There was a communal piece and, and again, you're going to look at this. You're going to be, you know, very judgmental. No, no, this was the context at the time. So don't judge their actions by our standards. You can't do that. It's not fair. People, okay, who are coming back to the church in this, in this time, they would have to sit in a special section when they came to church. They couldn't receive communion, but they would still come to church and sit over there. And oftentimes they would be like wearing a special garment, kind of like a scarlet letter. So everyone knew that these were the people who did this sin? Now you say, that's harsh. And I say, yeah, it's, it was harsh. But the goal of it was not to humiliate them. Different time, again, different era. The goal was to restore them. 
Look what St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 when he speaks about a church discipline situation like I just described. He said, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Look, he says, you guys punish this guy, and he doesn't scold them for it. He doesn't say what you did is wrong, but he's basically like, now is enough. That is sufficient for him. He goes on. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Early church didn't see themselves as just a country club, as just, as just a social gathering. They saw themselves as the true body of Christ. And as a body, there's a connection. No one had an individual relationship with God outside of the corporate relationship with the rest of the body. Like, just think about it. If there's a virus on my left hand, my right hand, like, it can't say it's none of your business. No, my left hand and my right hand are connected. If I got a problem in my pancreas, yeah, my liver has an issue with that. My pancreas and my liver are connected. We as the body of Christ, this was their understanding. Okay, and this is something that we may have lost. And everything is personal. Everything is individual. They didn't see it that way. That's why we have a kiss of peace. Because the peace between me and you is directly connected to the peace between me and God, and vice versa. The peace between me and God is directly connected to the peace between me and you. <clears throat> Sin was the business of the whole body, and therefore reconciliation was the business of the whole body. So they had a communal or some kind of public or corporate penance or reconciliation. No one says, no one writes exactly what that was, but it was clear that people would come back, some kind of confession, and there'd be some kind of process, laying on of hands is written about specifically, a laying on of hands to restore them back to the family. Now, before I move on, I just want to kind of take a step here and, and, and before we get to the third century, this model in the second century has good and bad to it. There is some good to it. The bar was high. Okay, and people were held to a high standard, which something that we can learn from today. And again, there was a sense of responsibility that if I sinned when no one was watching, that, that, that affected my brother. So there was a sense of, of, of truly one body and one family. But the negative, the bad part of this, of, this, of this system was two things. But one, it was very legalistic in the sense that it was kind of like if you did A, you had to, quote, do your time, like I did my time, and then you were restored. So it, it looked at it very much in an outer way. The second thing is, again, it focused more on the result versus the intention. Didn't look at the heart. Meaning, if I left my house to go commit murder, and on the way, the guy who I was going to murder got killed by someone else, I would not need to repent, according to this model. But clearly... If I'm going out my house to commit murder and, 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 you know, I get stuck in traffic and I don't get to do it, then clearly I, I, I have a sin that needs repenting and needs confessing. This model focused more on the public, on the outer, and less on the heart, the thoughts, the envy, the, 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 the judging, okay, those kind of inner sins. <clears throat> and that's where the third century corrects it. And the third century brought to us the monastic movement. Okay, and this is when the great um, uh, desert fathers appeared like St. Anthony and started to, to go out into the wilderness um, and live a monastic life. And through their influence, a new concept was introduced into the church, and that's the concept we live with today. And that's the concept of spiritual growth 
as a gradual process, not as a good or bad, yes or no, right or wrong, sin or righteous, but more as a growth, a climbing of a mountain. And that climbing is a process that's very customizable, very individual, very personal, and requires individualized counsel. Said another way, they taught us that confession is less about a sin in need of correction, and it's more about a sinner in need of healing. And that's where the church is today. It's not about guilt, it's about growth. It's not about perfection, it's about process. It's not about where you are in an absolute sense. It's about where we're going, where you're going and how you're going to get there. And that's where confession is today. And that's why I say to you, <clears throat> if you're not practicing the sacrament of confession, you're missing out. I'm not missing out. Like not me as the priest. Like, again, like I said before, it's not like I got some quota or I get a commission or, you know, like for every 10 confessions I take, I get, you know, like a, a free smoothie or something like that. It's not like that. If you're not confessing, you're missing out on an essential component of your own healing. <clears throat> Each trip to confession is not a trip to the principal. It's a trip to the doctor. But let's say it better. It's a trip to Jesus. It's a trip to Jesus, just like the people in the New Testament. They came to him and it says they brought people from everywhere. They brought sick people here and sick people from over there. And they brought them to the feet of Jesus. And one by one, he touched them. He forgave their sins. He washed them. He cleansed them. He restored them. Made them back to what they were before and even better. That's what confession is. Never think to yourself for one second that, that priest is forgiving your sins. Never think that. Who can forgive sins except God alone? As they said in, in, the, in the book of Mark chapter 2. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Only God can forgive sins. But the vehicle by which he chooses to forgive those sins. In the New Testament, the vehicle was his flesh and his blood, his body. And today, the vehicle is still his body, and that body is the church. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and 24 says, And they brought to him all sick people, all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Confession is not sitting with a priest. Confession is coming to Jesus. And just like in the New Testament, sometimes you got to fight through the crowds, push and shove. Where is he? Sometimes you got to do that with your priest. There's a long line of people. Okay, excuse me, sir, can I go in front of you? No, get to the back of the line, buddy. Like, yeah, sometimes there's some pushing and shoving. Sometimes you can't find a parking spot. Sometimes it's coronavirus and you can't even get there at all. But in the end, we're going to push. We're going to shove. Well, we're not going to push and shove, but you know what I mean. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do our part. We're going to find a way. We're going to get to confession. And in the end, I trust that if we get to Jesus, he will touch us and he will heal us. I've taken many confessions in my life. There has never been one confession that didn't end with me saying to the person, your sins are absolved. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And let me say that better. Not me saying it. Me as the priest, just like in communion, I'm just the hand of God giving the body and blood. All I am in confession is the mouthpiece of God. I'm the puppet. 
okay? I'm the, 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 the doll that God is just moving my mouth. And God says to you, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. There's a great, a great quote that I read many, or I heard, I'm sorry, I heard this one live um, from a bishop in the Coptic Orthodox Church. His name is uh, Bishop Benjamin, okay? And he serves in the diocese in Egypt. And he one time was speaking to a group of priests at a priest meeting, and he was speaking about confession. And he said this. He said, the mystery of confession is where the Holy Spirit takes the action of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and applies it to the sin of the individual. I love that. The confession, the words, the priest, the priest's hands, that stuff is not where the salvation is. The salvation, again, just like we said with the water, the salvation is in Christ and in his cross and in his redeeming act, the blood of the lamb which was shed for the salvation of the world. There's no salvation in anything other than in Christ. However, that act of Christ on the cross applies to me personally and individually and specifically connects with me how, in a real way, how? Through the sacrament of confession. Confession is the vehicle by which I receive what Christ said and did on the cross for the salvation of all mankind. <clears throat> all the sacraments, all the mysteries boil down to an exchange. They boil down to, I give something to God, God gives something to me. All the sacraments are that way. I give something to God, God gives something to me. In confession, here I come to God and I bring my repentance and I bring my, my, my godly sorrow and I bring my desire to live a new life. And in the end, he gives me his healing touch. I bring my guilt, I bring my shame, I bring my confusion, I bring my anxiety, I bring my stress. I bring, I bring, I bring, I bring, I bring. He puts his hand on me. He says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Who's getting the better deal in that trade? That's why, let me invite you all, invite you all okay, to seriously consider your relationship with the sacrament of confession and where it is that you stand with it. May invite you to come to your father, your heavenly father, through the vehicle of your, your, your priestly father, your, your spiritual father on earth, through the vehicle of the body, okay? Come to the body of Christ through the body of Christ and come and bring that repentant heart. And I promise you, what you will receive is much greater than what you will have given. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for the gift, of the gift of the church that you've given to us, Lord, and something we'll never understand, even 1% of the mystery of the church and the sacraments. Lord, help us not to take for granted the sacraments, especially this one of confession, which is available to us, Lord, and through which we receive your healing touch. Use this sacrament, Lord, and use all the sacraments to allow us to partake in you and participate in your divine life. We pray this in the name of your Son, with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. 
Amen. Thank you once again for joining us this week. It's great to have you back, and hopefully we'll get to see you next week. I'll leave you with just some questions up here on the screen that you can keep. That way you can keep the discussion going uh, in your homes or in your gatherings, uh, wherever it is that you are. All right. Have a great week. We'll see you back next week.